Oh, I was looking at it today, and there's a lot of information there. Um, so we we'll just have to keep it uh, down to a, a bare minimum. But that's that's the, what we're going to try to do. Um, so that kind of lays it out for the next few months what we'll be doing on Thursday nights. But now we're in Second uh, Kings chapter 22, and we got all the way up to verse 14. We got all the way up to verse 14. Josiah is now king of Judah, and he's a good king. And uh, he started a building project or a repair project in the temple. And as they're straightening things up in the temple, they find the book of the law. And uh, remember, for 57 years before Josiah, there was absolutely zero interest in anything to do with the Lord. Uh, Manasseh and Ammon, you know, Manasseh's king for 55 years, Ammon's king for two years. So, uh, so over half a century, no interest in the things of the Lord. And um, the law was just put back somewhere in the temple. And so they find it, and, and that's going to start a series of things. And the first thing that happens is we have this message from the prophetess in verses 14 through 20. Uh, the message of the prophetess in verses 14 through 20. So it says here, verse 14, So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to Hulda, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her. She said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord. Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might prov provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against, uh, against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I have truly heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place. So they brought back the word to the king. Now, as you look at this passage here, one of the first questions that comes up is, who is this prophetess? I mean, her name we know is Huldah which is a rather unflattering name because it means something like weasel or mole or mouse or something like that. But we also know that her family serves the king. Her, you know, her husband is somebody like the royal uh, uh, tailor or something, something like that. Um, some people think that 
when it talks about the keeper of the wardrobe here, that it could possibly be referring to the keeper of the priest wardrobe, their garments. But if he was the keeper of the priest wardrobes, that would make him a what? Levite. And that's kind of something you would expect them to mention here if he's a Levite. Uh, that's a significant thing. But it doesn't say that. So he's probably the, you know, takes care of the wardrobe of the king. Uh, we're told her house is in the second quarter here. Really, it's the second district of Jerusalem. So topographically, this would be in the lower section of the city. When it says second quarter here, it's a little bit deceiving because when we think of a quarter, what do we think of? How many parts? Four parts. Well, there's not four parts in Jerusalem. There's two parts right at this point uh, in Jerusalem. So when they say second quarter, it's, it's kind of confusing because do they mean the second quarter as in, you know, like your quarters, like where you live? Uh, that type of thing, or are they suggesting that, that the city's in four parts, but, it, but the city's not in four parts? Uh, the NIV gets this really bad when it says the new quarter. It's, it's the second district is, is what it says. So this is what we know about the prophetess. Now, why go to her? Why go to her? I mean, this is the time of Jeremiah, Zephaniah. Ezekiel would have been probably around at this time. So why go to her? Well, apparently her ability to prophesy was well known. Now, the king didn't know her. He didn't know about her. He just said, go inquire of the Lord. You see that in verse 13. He just says, go. He doesn't say go to her. He just tells his guys, go inquire of the Lord. But his guys, the high priest and these guys, they know about her and so they go they go to her and it's possible that these other more well-known prophets uh, weren't around they weren't available at the time we don't really know for sure but we do know is they go to her and this is her message that she gives her message essentially says as we've read that God is going to do what he said he would do according to his word in the law remember it talked about how the king read so what did the king read? He read the law. He read out of the first five books of the Old Testament. And in the first five books of the Old Testament, especially Deuteronomy, it tells us that for the nation of Israel, that if they are obedient, what happens? What does God do for them? He blesses them. If they are disobedient, what does God do? He's going to curse even to the point of removing them from the land. Okay, that's, that's, and that's the major judgment. So the, God says, I'm going to do exactly what I said I would do in the book of the law. That's the message that this prophetess gives. And the specific violation is in verse 17. And this is the violation of false worship. Uh, idol worship says they've forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods. Yeah, that's so they are involved in idol worship. And that's one of the big 
um, violations of the law. However, we see in verses 18 down to verse 20 that because of Josiah's devotion to the Lord, the Lord's going to spare him this judgment. Uh, so this judgment is not going to take place in the lifetime of Josiah. And I think it's important for us to note that even though Josiah is a good king and he brings in a lot of good spiritual reforms that we'll look at here in a little bit, uh, God does not change his mind about the judgment and he does not change his mind about the extent of the judgment. However, he is going to deal favorably with Josiah. And so we see that this leads immediately into chapter 23 and in verses 1 through 3, we see Josiah's covenant with the Lord. So, and it begins with a national day of worship. Look at verse 1 and 2. Then the king sent and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him. And the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. So it's a national, national worship day. Everybody is going to the temple for this event. And then we see in verse 2 that this event is marked by the public reading of the law. It says, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. So who's the he there? Josiah, that's right. So what's that tell us about Josiah? He can read. He can read now. And that's not always a given thing for a king. A lot of kings back then couldn't read. They, they would have somebody read for him. Josiah could read. So that's that's interesting thing. And, and what did he read? What's it? Use the words in the Bible. Go back a little bit before that. All the words of the book of covenant. So when, when I look at that, that makes me think he read the first five books of the Bible. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> if you started in the morning, you don't have anything else to do. You started in the morning and he started reading and he would read and he would read and he would read. And uh, they could do that in a day, I think. And he read all the words of the book of the law. So the book of the law is taking a center place in, in Joshua or Josiah's life and in the life of uh, the country. And so in verse 3, this leads Josiah to make a pledge, make a covenant with the Lord. It said, the king stood by the pillar. So I think that's the, as you go into the temple, there's two pillars. I think the king stands by the right pillar. That's like the king's place. We saw earlier, I cannot remember which king, was it Joash, who, he's the one where they hit him, right? Uh, and so the high priest then took him and was going to make him the king, and they put him by the pillar. 
because that's where the king goes. That's who stands by the pillar. And when Athaliah saw him by the pillar, she knew her time was up. So he's standing by the pillar, the place where the king would stand at the temple, and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with, now listen to the language, with all his heart and with all his soul and to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people entered into the covenant. So with, with all of his heart, with all his soul, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? You know, um, we see that in the New Testament, that type of language. So this is the covenant. The covenant is to obey the book of the law. We have the book of the law now. That's what he's saying. And we're going to obey the book of the law. Just like the people who were in the Exodus. And the law was originally given. And the law comes down. And, and Moses says, here's the law. This is the, the covenant from God. And everybody agreed, we're going to do it. Same thing is happening here. So this is almost like a replay of what happened in the Exodus. And, and all the people agreed with Josiah. And this leads immediately after they say, we agree to follow the law. This goes into the religious and spiritual reforms. And we see this in verses 4 through 27. Verses 4 through 27. Now, in verses 4 through 20... We have the purgings, the purgings, so, or cleansing. You can say cleansing. I'm sticking with the P words because you have purging here, and then we're going to see Passover uh, a little bit later. But I'm calling this the purgings, verses 4, uh, four through 20. So let me, let me I'm going to read down through here. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, for Ashtoreth, and for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and into the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Also those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and to all the hosts of heaven. Verse 6. He brought out the Ashtoreth from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. He also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes, that's the Kodashim, which were in the house of the Lord, where the women were weaving hangings for the Ashtoreth. Then he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not go up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. Verse 10. He also defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, 
that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire of Molech. He did away with the horses which the kings of Judah had given to the son at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the official, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. The altars, which were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars, which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke down, and he smashed them there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. The high places, which were before Jerusalem, which were on the right of the Mount of Destruction, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for the Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the abominations of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the sons of Ammon, the king defiled. He broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the Ashtoreth and filled their places with human bones. Verse 15. Furthermore, the altar that was at Bethel, and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made, even that altar and the high place he broke down. Then he demolished his stones, ground them to dust, and burned the Ashtoreth. Now when Josiah turned, he saw the graves that were on the mountain, and he sent and took the bones from the graves and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed who... Uh, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these things. Then he said, what is this monument I see? And the men of the city told him, it's the grave of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things, which you have done against the altar of Bethel. He said, let him alone, let no one disturb his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Josiah also removed all the house, houses of the high places which were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord. And he did to them just as he had done in Bethel. All the priests of the high places who were there, he slaughtered on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So a lot happening here. So this whole section you can see, it's about... Josiah is purging the land of false worship. He is cleansing the land from false worship. And there are specific things that are mentioned here that indicate to us the extent to which idolatry and false worship had invaded every aspect of life in Judah. So we saw in verse 4 that the temple was purged of items used to false worship was burned in the Kidron Valley, and its ashes were not even allowed to be close to the temple. They took the ashes to Bethel. They burned it and then took the ashes to Bethel because they did not want it to be around the temple. Uh, the priests who had been appointed to perform the acts of false worship are removed or deposed. The houses, in verse 7, talks about these houses where there was homosexuality that was practiced as acts of worship. These were torn down. In verses 8 and 9, we see that this purging took place not only in Jerusalem, but through the entire nation. It mentions two cities here, Geba and Beersheba. That's uh, like saying from the north to the south, as far as you can go north and as far as you can go south in Judah, they were uh, cleansing 
uh, the nation. In verse 10, special attention is given to the Valley of Hinnom. This is the Valley of Gehinnom or Gehenna. We hear that in the New Testament. The name Topheth here in verse 10, it says he also defiled Topheth. Topheth means something like the spitting place or the place you spit on, which would be a sign of something that is detestable, an abomination, something like that. So this is, this is an abominable place, and it goes on to describe why this would be an abominable place abominable place is because this is where they would offer their sons and daughters as burnt offerings to uh, Molech. In verse 11, we see that the articles representing the, the worship of the sun god were purged. In verse 12, we see that the false uh, altars that had been set up in the king's house and in the Lord's house are destroyed. In verses 13 through 14, we see that Solomon, he had set up gods to other nations. These were defiled and made unusable. And then in verse 15, we see that the oldest place of false worship outside of Jerusalem is destroyed. Bethel, the altar and high place at Bethel. Keep this in mind. Bethel had been a place, a center of worship for about 300 years. So that's older than the United States. They have been using that as a place of false worship uh, for that long. So that's a big deal. Uh, the bones that he had dug up there are probably the bones of the priests who had served the altar there. He had these burnt on the altar as a symbol of defiling the altar. In other words, it's not sacred anymore. It's unclean. Uh, but they did, they did find the bones of this one man that they didn't burn. These are the bones of the man of God who had predicted these things. So you can look at 1 Kings chapter 13 verse 2 and you see the account of this man of God who came up there and talked about what would happen. And in verses 19 through 20 we see that Josiah even went through Samaria cities of Samaria to do this same thing. Now, I think when it mentions here uh, the cities of Samaria, these are cities that uh, Judah now controlled. Uh, he probably did not go outside his territory. So they're, they're probably cities of Samaria, the northern kingdom, but Judah now controls them. And so he went there and he did the, he did the same uh, thing there. And so you have this purging, this, this mass nationwide purging. And after that, they're going to have a celebration. So after that, they're going to have a party. And the party is called Passover. And we see this in verses 21 through 27. It says in verse 21, Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it's written in this book of the covenant. So, Where's, where's, Passover, where's the Passover instituted? Book and chapter. Exodus, that's the book. Chapter 12. Chapter 12. It is chapter 12. It is chapter 12. <laughs> 
So just think of the, you know, plagues. How many plagues were there? So it's got to be after chapter 10, 10 plagues, chapter 10, getting it. Okay. Anyway, that's how my brain works. So there, as it's written in the book of the covenant, verse 22, surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of Josiah, this Passover was observed to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of the provocation, all, all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I have chosen, the temple of which I said my name shall be there. So here's Passover, and it concludes with a pretty stark uh, statement. So one of the marks of faithfulness or marks of lack of faithfulness to the Lord was the Passover celebration. When the nation wasn't celebrating Passover, it was a clear indication that they were no longer interested in following the word of the Lord. And uh, you'll remember that one of the things that even the good kings of Judah struggled with was the competing systems of worship. Most, most of the kings simply let the high places stay the pillars and the ashtarim, they let them stay and remain. So what happens when that occurred is it discouraged people from coming to Jerusalem and celebrating the national feast that the law says you're supposed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. So they weren't doing it. That's the picture we get, that they weren't doing it. Now we know that this was an absolute statement that no one ever celebrated Passover, verse 22. No, it's not saying that no one ever celebrated Passover because we know Hezekiah reinstituted Passover. But Passover was pretty, pretty often over, overlooked. Um, so in the 57 years of Manasseh and Ammon, the Passover was not celebrated. This means, I want you to think about it. This means that for over 70 years, the nation did not celebrate Passover. At least 70 years. Manasseh, 55 years. Ammon, two years. Josiah, it says that they celebrated the Passover in his 18th year. So it's a matter of numbers. Just do the math. So that's a, that's, that is a pretty significant thing. 
And even though Josiah is doing all this good, purge the land, we're back to celebrating Passover, the Lord says, judgment's still coming. Judgment's still, still coming. So then we see, as now we're going to move to the end of Josiah's life in verses 28 through 30. It says, now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So they're recorded. They're written down somewhere. Verse 29, in his days, Pharaoh Necho, this is Pharaoh Necho II, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates, that's in the north, and King Josiah went to meet him. And when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him where? Megiddo. Now, where is Megiddo? Yeah, but what's it called? It's called the Valley of Jezreel. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. How important that valley is in the biblical record. I mean, this is where the significant events happen. I don't think um, Josiah being killed there was a coincidence. I don't think that's at all. Um, but this is where he's killed. And um, it says his servants drove his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem, and he's buried in his own tomb. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him, made him king in place of his father. So now, a little bit of history. Keep in mind, because this will start to put things together. If you know, you know, history is nothing but people, places, dates, and events. Four things. You only got to remember four things to know everything about history. Okay, people, places, times, and events. So we have Pharaoh Necho II. And what he is doing is he is going to help the Assyrians. Now in 612, 612 BC, the Babylonians, with their coalition of several other empires, come up against Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. They come up against Nineveh and they take the city. The Assyrians flee. And the only place they can flee is west. So they're going west. Now they're headed towards what we know today is as Syria. So that's where they're headed. And so they're going out there. The Babylonians are in hot pursuit of the Assyrians. And as the Assyrians are trying to find a place to make a stand, they get in contact with the Egyptians and they say, come help. The Egyptians, knowing, hey, this is a great time. If we're going to fight the Babylonians, this is the time to do it. The Babylonians are not the world power yet. They're gaining strength, but they're not the world power yet. The Egyptians say, if we can join the Assyrians, it is possible that we can defeat Babylon. And if we defeat Babylon, the Assyrians are already weak. Now the Babylonians are weak. 
Now who's in charge? The Egyptians. So they're coming up to help. As they come up the coast of Palestine, Josiah goes out to stop them. The question is, why would Josiah go out to stop these Egyptians from going up against Babylon? The answer seems to be, remember his great-grandfather Hezekiah had a diplomatic relationship with the Babylonians. Remember the Babylonians came and he said, hey, look at all the stuff I have. He said, here's all my toys. You all get to see all my toys. And the Lord said, because of that, all those toys, not really toys, but his treasures and the treasures of the house of the Lord, all that's going to be taken away. Um, but he showed them and he had this friendly diplomatic relationship with the Babylonians. So it's possible that um, Josiah continued that friendly diplomatic connection. So he felt some obligation to go out and try to stop the Egyptians. But he ends up being killed. And um, that doesn't contradict what the prophetess said. Remember, the prophetess said what the Lord said was, you'll go to your grave in peace. Well, I think that just means the Lord's not judging you. You're, you're not going to die from the judgment of the Lord. Doesn't mean that you're not going to die in battle. And so Josiah goes out there. No, Josiah dies in 609, 609 um, BC. The Egyptians and the Assyrians get together and they do battle with the Babylonians in a place sort of on the Babylonian Turkish border areas called Carchemish, Carchemish. And it's there that the Babylonians defeat, finally defeat the Assyrians. The Assyrians will never again be an international power. They defeat them in 605 BC at Carchemish. It's from that point, 605 BC, that the Babylonians then turn south and come into Judah. And of course, 605 is the first deportment of the Jews out of Judah. So Daniel and his friends will be among that first batch. So when we look at the death of Josiah, it is the beginning, it is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of the end of Judah. So let's go on to Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz, in chapter 23, verse 31, uh, this should have been the, the handout for tonight. It should have his information there on it. Okay, he's going to reign in 608. He's only going to reign for three months. Okay, and uh, so we're going to look at him real quick. He just has a couple verses about him. Uh, the basic description of Jehoahaz is found in verse 31. It says, Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was uh, Hamutol, Hamutol, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. So here's his description. So his, his name means, so Jehoahaz, I think I got this right, his name means the Lord holds. The Lord holds. His father is Josiah, 23 year, years old when he becomes king, and he only reigns three months. 
He's only reigning three months. His spiritual condition is given to us in verse 32. It says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. So he was a wicked king and he was wicked because he did what the other wicked kings of Israel and Jerusalem did. In verse 33, we see that he's deposed. Okay, he's going to be deposed. It says, Pharaoh Necho imprisoned him at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Now, Riblah is going to be north of Damascus. It's going to be way north of Damascus in Syria, okay, in the land of Hamath. Not in the city Hamath, but the land of Hamath. And you, and you might wonder, well, how, what's this all about? Remember, Egypt is coming through Palestine. They killed the king. Immediately, the Jews are going to put the next king on the throne. Pharaoh, to secure his superior position over, Israel, over Judah, takes the new king and takes him and puts him in a city outside of their land. And he does this to hold him while the Egyptians go up with the Assyrians to fight against Babylon. So that's why they put him here in Riblah. And then it says that he might not reign in Jerusalem. Don't want him in Jerusalem where he can, you know, rally the people around him. And he imposed on the land a fine of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. So this is what he's, he's done. He's, he's deported, so to say. He's put in exile Jehoahaz. So he's only on the throne three months. The Egyptians say, we're taking you up here with us. Um, and, and we're leaving you in this city, no doubt, under guard. Well... What happens when a king gets deposed? What do the people do? Got to make somebody else king, right? That's what they do. So this brings us to Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. He is the, the 18th ruler of Judah. There's only 20, so we're moving to the end pretty quickly here. So you see his information there in your notes. He's going to reign from 608 to 597. It's 11 years. And you see the scriptures where this is found. So this starts in, in chapter 23, verse 34. Chapter 23, verse 34 through 35, we see the royal transition. It says, Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away and brought him to Egypt, and he died there. So this tells us what happens to Jehoahaz. So Jehoahaz was at uh, Riblah. Pharaoh Necho takes him from Riblah to Egypt, and that's where he's going to die. And so in his place, the Pharaoh sets up Eliakim, whose name is changed to Jehoiakim. Now, Eliakim means God sets up or God raises up. Jehoiakim means 
the Lord sets up or the Lord raises up. Yahweh raises up. So that's the difference. One says God, Elohim, Eli, Eli, Elo, raises up. And the other one is the Lord raises up. And so in verse 35, Jehoiakim pays the tribute. He pays the fine. It says, so Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh. Now, how did he get the money? But he taxed the land in order to give the money at the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land, each according to his valuation, to give to Pharaoh Necho. So he taxed people. There was taxation to get this money. So that's the transition. That tells us about the transition from Jehoahaz to Jehoiakim. How did that take place? Then in verse 36, we get the basic description of Jehoiakim, the person. So he's 25 years old when he became king. He's going to reign 11 years. And we get his mom's name there, uh, Zebida, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And then in verse 37, we get his spiritual condition. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. So he just followed the wicked kings that came before him. Now, here's where Babylon comes in. Here's where Babylon comes in. I got 10 minutes. Actually, I got 12 minutes to get through one page. It can be done. So this is, notice the control of Babylon in verses 1 through 4. The control of Babylon in verses 1 through 4. It says, in his days, whose days? Jehoiakim's days. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. Now, just a real quick note here. Nebuchadnezzar is called king of Babylon here. This is, this is sort of a... This is a statement of what characterizes Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is not actually the king of Babylon at this particular time. He's the crown prince. Um, his father, the king, is in Babylon and he will die very shortly. In fact, the reason that Nebuchadnezzar does not stay in Judah and press on towards Egypt is because his father dies. Okay, so this is just making a statement about, this is the, Nebuchadnezzar is known as the king of Babylon, not the crown prince, so king of Babylon. And in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. The Lord sent against him, that's against Jehoiakim, bands of Chaldeans, bands of Armenians, um, Arameans, not Armenians, Arameans, bands of Moabites, bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his prophets, his servants, the prophets. 
Surely at the command of the Lord, it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. So here's where the control of Babylon comes in. Um, so this is going to be when Daniel's taken into captivity, when Nebuchadnezzar comes in. And uh, what we see here is that Jehoiakim, for three years, he went along peacefully with Nebuchadnezzar. And as he goes along peacefully with Nebuchadnezzar, he figures, well, you know, it's time to rebel. And so the Lord sends these other nations into uh, Judah to punish them. He's trying, he, the, I should, don't like the word to say the Lord's trying, but you understand what I mean. The Lord is driving them out of the land. That's what he's doing. And now that Babylon isn't there exercising direct dominance and control, the Lord brings these other people in here, and it tells us this is because of Manasseh and all the blood he shed. Okay? And, and so we see here the Lord is fulfilling his word. And then... Jehoiakim dies. So verse 5. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Verse 6. So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers and Jehoiachin. So how do you keep track of Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin? Well, Jehoiakim ends with a M. And M becomes, comes before N. So Jehoiachin ends with an N. So that's how you keep track of them, all right? And another way to keep track of them is one's Korean and the other's Chinese. Yeah, that, that's probably not politically correct. <laughs> Jehoiakim, that's a, that's a Korean Kim. Kims are, Kims are Korean. Chins are Chinese. Verse 7, the king of Egypt did not come out of his land again, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates. We stop right there. So uh, Jehoiakim dies and is replaced by his son Jehoiachin. Egypt is, is either too fearful or too weak to resist Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar is able to go all the way to um, Wadi El Arish. And this seasonal stream is between the wilderness of Zin and the wilderness of Shor. So if you look at the Sinai Peninsula, if you can picture that in your mind, if you go up there towards the right-hand side, up by the Mediterranean Sea, that's where this place, this little stream is. So that's, in other words, uh, the writer here is telling us Nebuchadnezzar took all of Judah. He, he took all of Judah. He controlled all of Judah at this time. Egypt is now going to be a second-rate power. The Egyptians are not going to come out to try to challenge uh, the Babylonians. So this is, this is how Jehoiachin's reign begins. 
things aren't looking good. Babylon is basically in control of everything. And Jehoiachin is just going to be a puppet king. And we'll, we'll get into him next week. So we have, we're going to have two more kings to go through. We have Jehoiachin and we have Zedekiah. Those are the two kings. There's one other ruler in Judah that's mentioned in this book, and that's Gedaliah. But Gedaliah is going, he's not going to be a king. He's going to be more like a provincial governor. And um, Judah, when, when Gedaliah is the ruler, uh, Judah ceases to be an independent state political power. They're, they're, as a matter of fact, they're not even a provincial power. They become a province of Babylon. And Gedaliah is the provincial ruler. He's, he's like the governor. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I can't remember if it's Assyria or Babylon. And Babylon sort of took over the pattern of Assyria. But Assyria was extremely organized when it came to ruling their empire. They had their empire divided up into like 120 satraps. Remember in the book of Daniel where it talks about the satraps? These were guys who ruled over these satrapies. That's what they called these areas of rule. So it was very organized. They, I mean, it, it was, it, it's not like they didn't know what they were doing. And Babylon sort of had that same um, policy. And we see that uh, Judah becomes, it falls under, under that type of organization. So one of, the, one of the things that I think we are struck with as we consider these kings, Josiah, uh, Jehoahaz, and Jehoiakim, is sort of the opposite of what we talked about last week. Last week, we're like, here you got Manasseh, who's so wicked and bad, Ammon, his son's so wicked and bad, and Josiah is so good. How do you get that? We have the opposite this week. You have Josiah who is so good, who his sons are just going to be wicked, wicked sons. So Jehoahaz is son number one, okay, who rules. Wicked guy. Jehoiakim is Josiah's son number two. Wicked guy. And then we come to Zedekiah. It's going to be Josiah's son number three, who's a wicked guy. So how, how come this good king has all these wicked sons? Some of them are older when they become king. Some of them are younger. And, um, you know, it just tells us the importance of uh, children and training children. The other thing I think we really need to note as we look at not only this account that we've looked at this evening, but the entire study is that God has been telling the Jews since Egypt, it mentioned that this evening, from Egypt. He's been telling them from the time of Egypt. If you follow me, you will be blessed. If you disobey me, you will be cursed. 
from that point on, so when, when's that happen? When, when did they get the law? Exodus chapter, is it 32 or 34? Somewhere right there. Um, from that point on, everything we hear after that is warning. Turn back, turn back. It's not, make sure you don't turn away. It's, they've turned away. It's turn back, turn back, turn back, turn back. Now, we are in the year 605 B.C. When did the Exodus take place? Any idea? When's, when's the entrance to uh, the promised land? I'm trying to jog your memory here. If you know the interest of the promised land, you know when the Exodus took place. It took place about 1448, 1448 BC, something like that. Okay, interest of the promised land is going to be 1408, 1409 BC, 40 years later. So, 1448. How, you know, how much time has gone by till you get to 605? Just be, just rough. Yeah, a long time. A long time, almost a millennium. So God has been gracious and patient with his people for almost a millennium, telling them repeatedly, turn back to me and I'll bless you. Turn back to me and I'll bless you. And finally you get to Manassas and he's like the pinnacle of wickedness. And the Lord says... You are going to be punished. You will have to endure punishment just like Israel. And so we're about to get into that punishment. And the Lord will fulfill what he says. All right. Well, we're done. look at that. Right on time. 730 on the nose. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. So let me pray and we'll, we'll be dismissed. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. We're thankful for your patience and long-suffering with the nation of Israel. And Lord, even as we're just looking at a small portion, a small segment of your um, work with them and in them in history, uh, we see in this section of scripture how you have called them repeatedly back to you. And Lord, uh, uh, so we see that, we've been focusing on that and these kings, but Lord, help us to always remember that that's just one part of your message to the Jewish nation. The other part of the message is that one day they will be restored. One day they will turn to you in belief and they will be restored. And so we're thankful that as we look at the judgment and tribulation that you bring on them, and how you do that in line with your word, we also know that means when it comes to the restoration of Israel, you will do that in faithfulness to your word. And so we thank, we're thankful that you are a faithful and true God. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.